0: I have my sultry, come-hither voice. So when I shake my hands, that means I'm raising my voice at you, dramatically. Welcome to worship. It's great to see all of you here. We are in the middle of a sermon series on the book of Nehemiah, and we're asking the question, what does it mean for us as a people of God to really be for our city, to really... Before Port Orchard, for Gig Harbor, for wherever it is that God has placed us—not just to live there, but to be a champion for the community of which we are a part—I've been asking you to pay attention, to notice what's going on around you in a way that you might ordinarily not do that. And I'm going to brag on my life group a little bit. Friday morning, I, I asked that question of them: "Guys, you've heard what I've been saying. Have you been paying attention in a new way to the people?" around you. I'm really excited to say every single guy could say yes and they began to give me examples. One man is a business guy and he travels with a lot of colleagues that he doesn't really know very well and so he's begun to write down the names of their spouse and the names of their kids so that when he engages them in conversation he'll be able to ask specific questions and pray for them. Another guy had downloaded the, the app that I recommended last week called Echo which is a prayer reminder app. And he had downloaded that, and he was using that to remind him to pray every day for the city. You know, if you, if you think that the things I'm asking of you in this series are really for the person on either side of you in the pew, then we will never do what we want, which is to capture the hearts of every single member and friend of this church. So I'm going to ask you again, what I'm going to ask every week, how many of you this week Intentionally sought to notice those around you, to notice the people that are around you in your city in a, in a new and more intentional way. If you took some specific effort, raise your hand. Alright, great, good. Good. If you didn't, next week you have another chance. <laughs> One way you could do it is to go and buy up all these t-shirts. They're a great conversation starter. We got 70 of them. Go. Why don't you clean us out so the 1045 crowd doesn't have a shot at it? <clears throat> Thank you so much for laughing at my very meager efforts here. <clears throat> but if you're going to do all of this, frankly, you know, if, if you're an introvert, it's a little harder. I've shared with you that I'm actually kind of an introvert even though I get up here and you know, speak or mumble uh, every week. Uh, but I'm trying to take more initiative in my own neighborhood. I'm reaching out and, and, uh, and meeting people and speaking to them and, and praying for them and revealing more of myself. Although, a couple of weeks ago, it really went way too far in that in that regard. I told you this summer, we began to bike. And so, um, I finally bought my first pair of padded bike shorts. They are really not form-fitting, I got to tell you. They're kind of bulky, and they kind of stick out there. But I was so desperate, my butt was so sore that I was willing to wear, you know, deal with any kind of ignominy uh, fashion-wise to, to improve that. So I, I pull them on for my first padded ride and begin to pedal my way up towards Soundview. There's no, cross, there's no intersection at our cross street. And so ordinarily, I will wait there until all of the traffic in Soundview stops or gets past, and then I'll kind of dash across. To my surprise, though, as I was sitting there with the bike padded, uh, the guy who was heading down the hill stopped for me. And then, I think because he saw the guy coming in the other direction, stopped for me. I was so flustered, I jumped quickly up onto my seat and began to pedal paddle, paddle furiously across. I jumped so quickly, however, that I caught the padding on the nose of my seat and pulled my shorts halfway down. We're talking Moon River. <laughs> so, what was I going to do? Get off and pull them. You know, they're all waiting, you know. So, I just keep pedaling frantically with, you know, in all of my glory, I pedaled my way across the street and got to the, to the other side. Listen, I am for self disclosure, but that, that was way more transparency than anyone ever, ever deserved. So let's, uh, let's review where we are in this great journey through this great book. The kingdom of Babylon has invaded uh, the, the nation of Judah and, and has destroyed the city of Jerusalem. This once proud city has been ravaged. Its temple has been uh, destroyed. Its walls torn down. Its gates have been burned. And for 150 years, Jerusalem remains in this decrepit, uh, pitiful state. Now we meet a guy named Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a Jew. He is a descendant of some of those who would have been kidnapped and taken back to the kingdom 150 years earlier. But even though he's a Jew and a slave, he has risen to a position of great power. He's a cupbearer to the king. He has great influence. And it is in that capacity that Nehemiah receives a visit from his brother who comes along with a few guys and tells them of the continued decrepit state of their city and as you recall in our first sermon for some reason this just breaks his heart it's as if he had never heard this news before Nehemiah is just devastated by this and he begins to pray and fast and with a great deal of courage he goes to the king and says listen this is what I would like to have you let me do send me back to Jerusalem so that I can rebuild the walls of that city that took a lot of courage And the king said, you may go. And he sends him on his way. And we haven't really talked about walls and the significance of it, but I just need to tell you this. A city was its walls. If you didn't have walls, you didn't have a city. Walls defined a city. They defended a city. And so in those days when cities were often city states, if you didn't have walls, you didn't have a city. And so Nehemiah, who is the wine taster... Is about to become Nehemiah, the wall builder. And Jerusalem, which has been pathetic and defenseless for 150 years, is about to be changed. Here's the thing about change, though. It is hard. It is painful. It is threatening. It is controversial. If you are for your city... If you're willing to be used by God and His Spirit to mend what is broken in your city, to mend broken dreams and and broken institutions and broken relationships and broken marriages and broken people. I mean, all that sounds good, don't you think? That sounds like a good thing if, if you're willing to be used as a healing agent like that. But it also represents change. And any change, even good change, is painful and hard and sometimes very divisive. It turns out that Nehemiah was really good at leading change. And today he's going to teach us four things. If we want to be agents of change, here are four key principles that we're going to learn today. Maybe you'll jot them down in your in your bulletin there. Four key change principles. Here's what he teaches us to look carefully, to recruit strategically. To drip the vision. What do I mean by that? We'll come to it. To drip the vision. And finally, beware the guardians of the rubble. Beware the guardians of the rubble. So let's turn to our text this morning. You'll find your Bibles in front of you. Nehemiah's page 398. I'm going to read from chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. Keep your Bibles or your Bible apps open. We're going to refer to it throughout the sermon. Okay, so keep it open. Listen to God's holy word. Nehemiah says, So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few good men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night, by the valley gate, to the Dragon Spring and to the Dung Gate and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire drop down to verse 16 and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing and I had not yet told the Jews the priests the nobles the officials and the rest who were to do the work This is the word of the Lord. All right. The first thing that Nehemiah teaches us about leading change is to look carefully. And you'll say, we've already heard this. This was your first sermon and you said it last week. Yes, it's true. But here's the deal. It's essential. And I'm repeating it because it repeats itself in the story. And it is essential for us. If we do not look at what is going on around us, if we do not really look at reality as it exists, we will never be agents of change of any sort. You've got to know what's real, what is true, what is the situation before you can be an agent of any sort of change. I was a newly ordained assistant pastor in at First Press Bakersfield, and one of my assignments was to be the pastoral liaison to the deacons. I was very excited about this. Newly ordained, wanted to strut my stuff, I wanted to do a good job, and so I developed a plan for how I was going to overhaul the deacon board. (laughs) Now, mind you, I had never even attended a single meeting of the deacons. But I developed my plan, and when I went to the first meeting, I was loaded for bear. I laid out all of the changes that we were going to make, the timelines and the assignments and the goals. There was a new sheriff in town, and things were going to be different from now on. How do you think they responded to that gift? (laughs) They handed me my head on a platter, and I deserved it. I was so eager and so stupid that I hadn't taken the time to really look, to see what was already in place, to see what was strong and see what was deficient, to, to see who was already at work doing the work of the deacons. I had not yet earned the right to be heard. Nehemiah, before he says a word, he looks carefully at his situation, at his circumstances. We also read that he looked discreetly. We're told twice in the text that he went out on his examination of the walls at night. That had to be a challenge, wouldn't you think? That was before there were a lot of streetlights in Jerusalem. And the walls, remember, had crumbled all around. It would have been like walking through a, a minefield, a rubble minefield. And yet that's when he went out, was at night. And we read in verse 16 that, and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. That must be something to contain yourself that way and not just speak out with excitement. It's easy in your enthusiasm to prematurely blurt all you think that God wants you to do. And frankly, that's a challenge I've had all of my life. I'm an idea guy. I'm a problem solver. I'm a fixer. And I get excited when I have a problem to fix. And sometimes I blab too much. I'm a premature blabber. And I'm glad Pastor Megan is helping me because she's afflicted with the same thing. So we're partners. We are premature blabbers. Nehemiah knew that he'd be buying trouble if he was seen nosing around the ruins of the city. And so while he assessed all that needed doing, he didn't want to tip his hand to anyone. And for probably a couple of reasons. For one thing, his early solutions might not have been his final solutions. There's no reason to get people all riled up if what you end up doing is different from what you thought you were going to do in the first place. And, as we will see, the change that he proposed was going to stir up some enemies. Why would you telegraph your punch? There's no reason to get his opposition riled up and get them applauding on his demise. And so wisely, he was discreet about this. Whether the the restoration that you are called to is institutional or relational or spiritual or moral, before you tip your hand, before you telegraph your punch, before you announce your grand plans, take a long and careful and discreet look at reality. Nehemiah also led change by recruiting strategically. We already saw that he examined the wall on the sly, but he didn't do it alone, did he? Verse 12 says, Then I arose in the night I and a few men with me. Nehemiah knew that he was gonna, he could not lead this change alone. He needed partners. He had prepared and to examine the magnitude of the problem and he invited a a few men to come along with him. In fact, I think this is why he waited for three days. Did you notice it says he came and he waited three days and then he went on his examination of the wall. Why did he wait? It wasn't jet lag. I'm quite certain of that. So why did he wait? And I think part of it was he was sniffing out who are the influencers? Who are the people that are going to make, be able to help me make God's vision a reality here? And so he spent three days finding who the right people were. The ones who could help him fulfill God's call. And then he took them along with him. This principle... I would say I've seen reinforced in my life and ministry again and again and again. If you surround yourself with good people, there's nothing you can't accomplish. Surround yourself with good people, and there's nothing that you can't accomplish. We have a a saying in our staff, a motto, and it's keep your head on a swivel. Keep your head on a swivel. And by that, what I mean is always be on the lookout for talent. Always. Even if you don't have a job for them, Look for the talent. You can figure out the job later. I have pastoral friends across the country who are aware of our remarkable young leadership team, and they say, how do you do that? And my answer is always the same. We look for them, we hire them, we train them, we empower them, and we trust them. That's how we do it. We do it on purpose. We recruit great people to be a part of the team. I would say the same is true for our lay leaders in this church. You have some wonderful elders and deacons. Just last week, I was talking with one of our elders about a situation that was really disturbing to me. He was out of town at the time when I first called him, and he could tell it was disturbing to me. And he said, don't do anything before we talk. I think he is aware of my predilection to act. And and so I waited, and we met, and... Not very far into the conversation, he said, I think I need to take care of this for you. You know how great it is to have elders like that? I think I need to... Let me take that one off your plate. And he did. One of the things that I've learned in my latter years as a chronic problem solver is the wisdom and power of recruiting a great team and then releasing control. If you sense God is calling you to work of restoration in the city... Why in the world would you do it on your own? Have the wisdom and the humility to invite a few other carefully chosen folks to join you in accomplishing what God has called you to do. So he recruited this group of guys and they examined the wall together and now he's had a conversation with them. I want you to listen to the conversation as we pick it up at verse 17. The conversation Nehemiah has with his few good men. Verse 17. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands. ...for the good work. Here's the third change-leading principle. Drip the vision. Since it's so weird, just say it with me, would you? Drip the vision. Here's what I mean by this. By this time, Nehemiah knew what he needed doing. He knew the wall needed to be rebuilt. He knew that he was the guy to lead the charge. He knew that he had the resources. He knew he had the king's protection and permission to do it. What he didn't have yet was the support of the people... For 150 years, they had lived in this rubble. Rubble was their world. It was their norm. It was all that they knew. And Nehemiah was about to turn their world upside down. And he knew he was going to have to have people to help him. To, he was going to have to help the people to get a glimpse of a new and better future. Now, he could have proclaimed the vision. He could have just declared it. And that would have been my instinct, you know... Let's build that wall. you got to build that wall. <sighs> yeah, he could have done that. But instead, he dripped the vision. He let it out a little bit at a time. I want you to notice how carefully he guarded his words. Verse 12, I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. Now, think about the self-control that that required. He'd made a thousand-mile trip for this purpose. He shows up in Jerusalem. He spends three days there. And yet, he doesn't say boo. Not a word about what he thought God had called him to do. What incredible self-control he possessed. And he took these few recruits along with him to see for themselves, first of all. Didn't say a word. And after they had seen the circumstances, after he was done with his inspection, his words are still very subdued. Listen. You see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Do you see it? That is great leading. That is great leadership. Come, let us build the wall. He doesn't say, I'm going to build the wall, will you follow me? He said, let's build this wall together. And you saw the response of the people. They said, yes, yes, let's do that. Let us rise up and build Nehemiah dripped the vision bit by bit by bit. He waited until his friends had caught the vision so then they could be the champions. They could be the cheerleaders of what God wanted to do in Jerusalem. My tendency to tell people how we're going to solve a problem has gotten me in trouble a lot. For instance, that thing up there, it's called a balcony. And uh, last year, we decided to close the balcony without even trying to uh, to invite the stakeholders in to be a part of the decision. We had good reasons for doing it, and we did it. And then I spent six months picking up the pieces and cleaning up the mess. Now, we would have still had some upset people even if we had shared it with them. But if I had spent some time communicating and listening, I would have saved myself a whole lot of grief. And you a whole lot of heartache. I didn't drip the vision. I just kind of threw it out there. Here's Nehemiah's final teaching. This is a hard one. Beware the guardians of the rubble. Beware the guardians of the rubble. In verse 19 we read, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, They jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? I want you to pay attention to those names because it's not the last time you're going to hear them. Every time they come on the scene, there ought to be, you know, evil music playing in the background. Sanbalat, Tobiah. It's not the first time we've heard from them, by the way. In verse 10, which we didn't read this morning, we read that Sanbalat the Horonite... And Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, heard this, heard that he was going to rebuild the walls. And it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Think about those words. It displeased them that someone was going to do something good for the people of Israel. Why would that be? Well, it turns out if you dig in a little bit, you discover that Sanballat was the governor of the area to the north. Samaria. Uh, Tobiah, when it says servant, it might mean the word official. So he served in some capacity in the area to the east, Ammon. And Geshen probably served and lived and maybe ruled in the area to the south of Jerusalem. None of them then actually lived in Jerusalem. They were all the guys on the outside of Jerusalem. And they had no interest in What was their interest in having Jerusalem have its walls be rebuilt and regain its prestige and its power? None whatsoever. No, he had no interest in seeking the welfare of the city or of its people. In fact, under their watch, under their supervision, their superintendency, the walls of Jerusalem had continued to lie in ruins for generations. The people had continued in despair. They had done nothing about it. They were the guardians of the rubble. They liked things the way they were. Walls broken, gates burned, they didn't want anything changed. And Nehemiah was all about change. If God is going to use you to rebuild some part of your broken world, of your broken city, you better watch out for the guardians of the rubble, for, because every city has them. Every church has them. Every organization. No matter how broken or how dysfunctional things might be, there are always some folks who don't want a thing changed. They like it just the way it is. Guardians of the rubble hate change. They fear change. Guardians of the rubble prefer familiar brokenness to unfamiliar health. I'm aware of a church right now. They must change to survive. If they don't change, they will not survive. The pastor knows this. Some of the leaders know this. But the guardians of the rubble there are so powerful that they're not sure they're going to be able to pull it off. And I've seen it in families too. It is a fearful thing to go to someone that you love and say, listen, your drinking is destroying your family. Or your child is out of control and needs counseling. Or if you don't stop flirting with your assistant... Your marriage is going to be on the rocks. And when you bring such words to these people, are they typically grateful and thrilled with your input? Nope. Often they're not, and especially if they're the guardians of the rubble. They would rather cling to the brokenness they know than risk an uncertain healing. And this can be particularly true of those who are in an abusive relationship or the spouse of an alcoholic They will not risk, I'm waving my hands, they will not risk the intervention, intervention that is the only hope of saving their marriage and maybe saving their lives. They would rather just suffer in the familiar rubble that they know so well. Isn't this exactly what Jesus faced when he was confronted by the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Here was the very Messiah that they had waited for for hundreds of years, that they had prayed for. God in the flesh, it was ready to bring restoration, transformation, joy, and shalom to his people. But instead of embracing him, they clung to their tired, broken, lifeless religiosity. And because the change was too painful for them to bear, they killed the bringer of change. I once thought that the way to win over your steadfast opponents is to recruit them onto the team. Is to put them into leadership. Ah, All they got to do is be in close to see the inside workings of things and then they'll be with me. It's a horrible idea. It almost never works. Almost never works. All it does is give the boo birds greater power to oppose your, uh, your ideas. I wish I'd... Paid more attention to Nehemiah on this one too, because we find his response to this idea in the very last words of Nehemiah to Sanballat and the boys. I want to read it to you out of the message because it's really vivid. Here's what he says after they're making fun of him; they're they're chiding him for what he's going to do. Here's what he's, here's his response. We read: "I shot back. The God of Heaven will make sure we succeed. We're His servants." And we're going to work rebuilding. And you can keep your noses out of it. You get no say in this. Jerusalem's none of your business. That was gutsy. If God is going to use you to lead change in your city, in your family, in your neighborhood, it might mean that you have to have the courage to stand up to those who will cling to what is broken, no matter how miserable they might be. Those, there are four, four ideas for you to consider in your call to be a, a leader of change. We've promised that we're going to give you some tools along the way. As you can see, we're not letting up on this. This is not a one and done. We're going to spend weeks focusing on this, digging into this idea of what it means for us to love our city and how to remember, how to notice, how to pray for. As I said last week, we hit those doors of amnesia in the back and all of the good ideas that we had are just gone. So what can we do? Um, and we've given you some. We've given you t-shirts. We've given you some decals to remind you. We uh, gave you an app to download. So here's today's. This is, this is decidedly low-tech. This is a gift for you who would know how to download a phone app for, to save your life. Here, here is uh, as low-tech as it gets. In your bulletin, you had a card that was given to you. And we made it uh, stick, stiff enough that it will um, survive the next few weeks. Because what I would love to ask you to do is keep it with you. Keep it in your purse. Keep it in your pocket or your back pocket. Keep it with you and use it. Uh, pretend that you're Nehemiah. Pretend that you're as you're walking around, you're examining the state of your city. You might see some things that are really good, but you might also see some things that need some attention. You might notice people that you've never noticed before in your neighborhood. I can't tell you how just opening my eyes has given me chances to connect with neighbors that otherwise I just pass right by. All I'm asking right now is for you to use this card to jot down what you are noticing. And I'm going to ask you at the beginning of every sermon, I'm going to say, okay, raise your cards up and wave them at me. So I'm warning you right now. And on one side, you can write down what you're observing about the city. Maybe it's the elections and other things that you might want to lean into. On the other side, I want you to just write down the names of unchurched people that God is bringing into your circle. And I've got three names written on here. People that I'm praying for, that I'm thinking about, that I'm paying attention to. thats And that's all I'm asking you to do. I'm not asking you to approach them. I'm not asking you to to give them the gospel. All I'm asking you to do is notice, write it down, and lift it up. Write it down and lift up what God is placing on your heart. And just see what might happen. I want to close with um, some really encouraging gospel news. The good news that we find at the very last part of our text. There's some stuff in there that's kind of harsh and hard. But I want you to hear what Nehemiah says in the very last words of his text. He says, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. The God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. I have no idea what God might call you to do for the sake of your city. This is not a Chapel Hill program. This is a you and the Holy Spirit program. All we're asking you to do is be aware of what God might call you to be a part of in ministering, in being for your city. Maybe though, maybe there's a little bit of the guardian of the rubble in you that needs to be chipped away. Or maybe God has called you to some work of restoration. I want you to claim the promise that Nehemiah offers here. The God of heaven will make you prosper. And you, his servants, will arise and build. Can you imagine the power, the force for good? If 1,200 spirit-filled people rise up and say, I am ready to build, to restore, to be a part of blessing this city. Can you imagine? I can't wait to see what results. Father, I love this church. I love this service. These people who have already, many of them, been so invested in the good of your city. I look out and I see their faces. I know in places that they have served, the things that they have done, the way that they have given of themselves. But Lord, I, I dig in deeper. I ask that all of us would take a new look at what it is that we might be called by you to bless this city. You are the God of this city. You're the God of all of these people. You love them whether they know it or not. You love them whether they've responded or not. And so God, would you give us your heart and your eyes to have our hearts broken for broken people and broken relationships, broken marriages, broken institutions, a broken culture. Would you give us the eyes to notice, the heart to care, and the willingness just to start by lifting it up to our God, our great God, whose hand whose good hand is upon this work. We ask it in the name of Jesus.